This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independence. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvelis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country in Nam, Melbourne. And I'm Fran Kelly and I'm joining you from the lands of the Ngunnawal people and the Ngambri Nation in Canberra. And here on The Party Room, we're going to be joined by Shane Wright, who's the economics correspondent with the nine newspapers, to talk about, well, the hottest ticket in town this week in the nation's capital. And that was the performance by the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, at Senate Estimates this week. Maybe maybe it was the hot seat rather than the hottest ticket, I'm not sure. Anyway, Shane was glued to it for hours, I know, and he'll be along soon with his review. First PK, though, just nine months since they were elected. It looks like the Albanese government's honeymoon may have come to an abrupt end. The government has three big ticket policies that they want to get passed and passed in a hurry. Why the rush? Well, there were three key election promises, big spending items. The government has a lot riding on them, including jobs. The trouble is the coalition isn't playing ball. It has said no, an outright no to all three which then leaves the government at the mercy of the Greens and the crossbench. And it's kind of like a mad speed dating night, PK. And the government's trying to work out what it has to pony up to make the Greens pick them within limits, of course. So let's go through a couple of them. The first big one is something called the Safeguards Mechanism Bill, which the government's going to introduce into Parliament this week, we think. It's a retooling of a coalition mechanism to reduce emissions, except the coalition version never did that and never forced anyone to do it. It actually will work by forcing the biggest emitters, and there's more than 200 of them, to cut their carbon emissions by around 5% every year. And it's absolutely central to Labor fulfilling its pledge to reduce emissions by 43% by 2030. Because working properly, it takes the equivalent, I think it's roughly two-thirds of the vehicle emissions, basically, every year out of the atmosphere. So it's a very big deal, but the Greens are playing hardball. Yeah, they certainly are, Fran. They say it doesn't go far enough in terms of curbing emissions. They are willing to support it. So they say they've moved quite a long way. It's a far cry from what they want. But there's a big but, Fran. They'll only support the safeguards mechanism bill if Labor commits to not opening any new coal and gas. Greens leader Adam Bant was on Radio National Breakfast on Thursday and he was quite clear that his amendment was an offer, though, not an ultimatum, which I think is really interesting. Here he is. Well, we've put on the table an offer, not an ultimatum. Um, We've said we're prepared to compromise on a number of things. Um, um, We're prepared to compromise on a range of issues, but we want the government to agree to one condition. Stop making the problem worse. Stop opening new coal and gas projects. So that was the Greens leader, Adam Bant, on RM Breakfast on Thursday. If you missed the interview, it's on the ABC Listen app. So we've compromised just this one thing, but the one thing is is massive for the government, right? This is a really key moment for them, I think, where they don't want to look like they're pushovers, but equally they don't want to look like they're stymieing or, or standing in the way of any movement to say goodbye to the so-called climate wars. I consider it quite a wicked problem for Adam Bant. So he's kind of signalling his preferred state of play, but he's not suggesting... I mean, I really pressed him in this interview about, are you willing to stand with the coalition and vote this down, though? I didn't get the feeling that he really wanted to stand on that side, right? 
Well, no, and Labor was taunting the Greens, you know, uphill and down Dale yesterday in question time, saying, don't do it again, what you did with the CPRS, you know, do you held back climate change, you, you know, fueled the, the climate wars. Now, the Greens have always resolutely refused to accept that version of history. They don't wear that badge of dishonour. They, they sort of, you know, rebuke you every time you raise it. But I'm sure it is in the atmospherics of this. There's no doubt about it because it is the government because of is the way saying, they're behaving. They won't concede it, but in their behaviour is the concession. Yes, I think that's right. So it's there. It's there in the atmospherics. Both sides have a lot riding on this. You know, the government has made this pledge of 43%. They can't get there without the safeguards mechanism. The Greens needs to deliver more action for the climate because that's their mission statement. And they, you know, I think have been quite successful, actually, much more successful than I thought when I first heard it, of making this mantra of no new coal or gas projects you know, more prevalent. You know, on the one hand, they're saying, and the world is telling us from the UN to the scientists to the International Energy Agency saying we've got to reduce the number of gas and and coal projects. And and on the other hand, why would the Australian government be allowing new projects? So I think they're starting to get traction with that mantra, but it is just a slogan in a sense. So how do we bridge this gap? The Greens want the government to give something. The government won't give no new coal and gas. The government's pretty relaxed about no new coal mines because I don't think they think the market's going to support much action on that front anyway. Certainly there's going to be no new coal-fired power stations in Australia. So they're thinking, you know, that's not such a heavy burden, but they're not going to come to the party on no new gas. So, you know, where is this negotiation going to be? Is the government going to give any ground? Are they going to have to give some ground to the Greens that would suggest, well, if there are new gas projects, they're going to have to face tighter regulations Mm. under this safeguards mechanism, even tighter regulations than the current big emitters do under the plan. I'm not sure where it's going to land. It seems to me a very big chasm at the moment, but it has to close for both sides, I think, politically. Yeah, which takes me to the next issue. The coalition, they expected some support on some of these issues Mm. right after the election. You know, it was a big message on climate change at the election. So I think the government's been a a little bit confused. I genuinely don't think they fully saw the level of opposition they're getting from the coalition. So they really didn't because they thought maybe the coalition would respond differently on some of these questions. On two key pieces of legislation now on climate, the coalition says no. And it's a similar story. This one really shocked them. I know this. On the National Reconciliation construction fund. Now, that's this $15 billion fund the government says will will fix some supply chain issues that became really evident during the the COVID pandemic, right? And this idea, which is, of course, really parochial, nationalistic, that we Mm. want to make more stuff here. Well, the coalition had their own fund like that, didn't they? They did. But you can hear the sort of why, you know, it really resonates, the idea of Mm. making stuff here and future-proofing ourselves, all of that sort of stuff. The government, again, needs the support, though, of the Greens and two crossbenchers, which is the new configuration, to get it passed because the opposition just went, no, we're not going to do this. Now, the kind of argument from the opposition on all of this is debt and that Labor is uh, borrowing too much. And it's all but a part of the narrative that they're trying to build, which is their key way they can see a pathway to possibly getting back to office, which is that, you know, building this story, which they've done before in the past as Labor as economic wreckers. So they're, they're going to not vote for that. And again, now, even on this one, the Greens are demanding that there be no coal and gas, even on this one. Now, I spoke to Ed Husick, who's the industry minister, who wouldn't, again, commit to that, wouldn't rule anything in or out. But 
it actually puts the Greens in an incredibly powerful position the mm. way that the Coalition's playing all of this, right? Yeah, it puts them in the box seat. Now, it also puts maximum pressure on them, but it puts them in the box seat. And all a party, a minor party, well, less minor than they were before the election after their so-called green slide election, as Adam Bant likes to remind us, that's all that kind of third party wants, isn't it? It wants to be the focus because then that lifts its profile and come the next election, it, you know, they can say we achieved this and it'll attract more votes. So that's what they want. I don't understand why why coalition wants to deal itself into irrelevance. You know, our theme at the top of the party room every week has Peter Dutton saying, you know, we represent the forgotten Australians. Well, it's the forgotten Australians who are going to benefit from more manufacturing jobs. It's the forgotten Australians who are going to, we haven't even mentioned this third policy, which is a housing fund, which, you know, might benefit from more affordable housing and more social housing. I really don't understand the coalition strategy here, except, as you say, to try and keep the focus on Labor being, you know, can't manage the economy. Every question this week almost has been, why are interest rates always higher under Labor? Peter Dutton seems to be relying entirely on the economy going bad and Mm -hmm. Labor wearing that as his political re-election strategy. I just don't get it. In opposing this particular fund, the one you just alluded to, this $10 billion fund to invest in new housing projects, this again, it's all just the deadline. This is their framing. And also inflation. They want to build the case that the government is not doing enough to tackle the inflation issue. And we'll talk more to Shane about this in a moment, but they really want to differentiate on that massive product differentiation so that it's not the RBA boss's fault, but it's the government that's not tackling inflation enough. So that's why on these three key issues, well, two specifically, I think, the building fund and also the housing fund, that they want to build that story. That's going on. A lot of, as you say, atmospherics. This week has also, of course, been Senate estimates. So there's been a lot of politics playing out there. And then the other really big significant story of this week, which we'll just talk about briefly, which is uh, the government announcing that it will fulfil its election promise. Everyone's been waiting for this. Lots of questions around this to allow 19,000 refugees who arrived in Australia prior to Operation Sovereign Borders 2013, who are on temporary visas to become permanent residents. This is a big deal. As I say, there's been this waiting, holding pattern, but this is the only departure on Operation Sovereign Borders. And boy, oh boy, Fran, have the coalition been jumping on this one. Yeah, let's hear from the um, Shadow Home Affairs Minister, Karen Andrews, on Sky News, talking about this and trying to sort of point the finger at Labor. Um, means that the people smugglers will be able to send a very clear message to the people that they are trying to lure onto boats. And unfortunately, that message is likely to be that Australia is once again open for uh, business. The action taken has clearly put Australia at risk. So there you have it, an old scare campaign come back, um, PK, desperately being brought back. Seems to me the only one sending a message to the people smugglers at the moment are the opposition who keep saying, you're opening the door, you're opening the door. They're not opening a door. These people who are being given, in my view anyway, these visas have been in Australia for 10 years, many of them working, paying taxes, um, but really not being able to uh, live the life that I think most of us want productive Australians to be able to live, go to university, go to TAFE, do any kind of training. They, they, they can't get access to that, for instance, Medicare, things like that. So I think I think atmospherics are different than when this scare campaign did bite so hard, you know, the coalition accusing Labor of rolling out the welcome mat 
for people smugglers. Um, boats aren't coming in great numbers. No, so... but one thing has happened. The Navy has revealed it is providing surge support to patrol Australian waters. Yeah, and yeah, because yeah. They're, because they're not going to make that same mistake that Labor made back when Kevin Rudd was first elected. And and uh, you so know, it's a smart move. You're right, but it does though. I'm, in terms of the politics, which is what what we're doing here, right? It does allow the Liberals, and Karen Andrews did it again um, the next day, to jump on and say, well, you know, the Navy has got surge patrols. That's how much this policy is a mistake. It just Do you think it resonates in the same way as it did 10 years ago? Great question. Great question. Not right now. But if boats were to arrive, I think it could uh, become an issue again. Absolutely. Yeah, that. I just think it's not resonating right now as it once did. But, you you know, nevertheless, Labor, when it made this announcement um, to fulfil this promise and give these 19,000 people full full visa rights, full citizen rights, um, it didn't actually make a big song and dance about it, did it? Oh, it's such a different way of dealing with with it than in the past. You know, no big press conference, no bells and whistles, just quietly announced, you know. They they announced it, but you didn't see sort of them throwing themselves into this. They weren't leaning into the announcement, right? Um, And I, I think that does demonstrate some of the lessons of the past. But look, on national security and on the economy, which have historically been, of course, strong suits for the uh, coalition, they have been trying to zero in on those two big issues because they figure uh, the tide will change at some point. They want to build stories on both of those. And that's what you're seeing in terms of the positioning, I think. Look, just briefly before we bring our guest in, Monday marked 15 years since the Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd at the time, apologised to the Stolen Generations. Now, at the time, uh, a small group, including the now opposition leader, Peter Dutton, uh, boycotted the apology and Peter Dutton walked out, a decision he's since said he came to regret. He made a pretty significant, there was a moment that was quite significant at this particular uh, address on Monday where he sort of turned around and he apologised to the members of the Stolen Generation who were there in the, the chamber who'd come on this anniversary. It was like a quite a key moment. Uh, a lot of analysis um, I've seen online from people saying, you know, it's politically motivated, mea culpa. No doubt politics is, I think, behind a lot of decisions politicians make, but I, I think apologising for this is probably a good good decision, don't you, Fran? I mean, like, you know, that was what was a huge blunder. Yeah, no, that's right. And Peter Dutton's come to that conclusion when he was elected leader. He said, I regret that decision uh, on the apology. And this time he said it even more forcefully and turned around to those in the gallery, as you said, and, and apologised. But this was because the Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, had stood in the parliament and warned those who'd opposed the apology 15 years ago, not to make the same mistake again and vote against the voice to parliament. So she was not naming names, but Peter Dutton was clearly in the frame for that. He is trying to, uh, you know, stress his bona fides, if you like, to Indigenous Australians, which is, you know, I'm not against you. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that I voted against the apology. I didn't realise the impact of it. I can see it now. Mm. Um, but he's trying to get that sorted before he, you know, gets pinned with being anti-Indigenous by not supporting the voice. So it's Just, um, just on that, though, he did do something which uh, I know offended some Aboriginal people where he said we're currently 
going, we're going to say sorry for today's policies too. He thinks uh, he called for a royal commission into uh, Aboriginal children and sexual abuse. Mm. So um, that is like, obviously those issues should be dealt with. Absolutely. But um, that, that statement itself, I think, was contentious and some uh, Aboriginal people were not um, overwhelmed with happiness that he he sort of framed it in the same in the same way at that at that point too. So there's that. Look, just a few things to note before we bring in our guest. Next week is the week of action for uh, the Yes campaign that they've been long talking about. You're going to see a lot of activity for the Yes campaign next week, and we're recording this on a Thursday, so we can't tell you the outcome. But Peter Dutton is also going back to that referendum working group. This is the second meeting uh, and, uh, you know, he's still in the tent <laughs> reading where's he going to go on this, but he's going back to that meeting. So, hey, shall we bring in our guest now? Let's do it. <laughs> and it's the wonderful Shane Wright in the party room today, senior economics correspondent for The Age and the City Morning Herald. Welcome to the party room, Shane. Patricia, you are far too kind. Sadly, you're not in the same room as Fran and I. I get to see Fran in the flesh, and it's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and loving it. Hi, Shane. loving it. Good to see you guys. Senate estimates was the event of this political week, and the RBA Governor, Philip Lowe, was really in a very hot, hot seat. He's the man, of course, who's brought the nation nine interest rate rises on the trot, with more to come. Let's hear from the Governor on why the Reserve Bank is going so hard on rates to try and curb inflation. We want to get inflation down because it's dangerous. It's corrosive, it hurts people, it damages income inequality, and if it stays high, it leads to higher interest rates. Now, I was really interested to hear that because basically his message is we're trying to get the lesser of two evils going here. So everyone out there, and he's told us how he gets letters from people and how they really you know, pull at his heart, but he says if they don't do their job and get inflation within the bounds, then it's going to inflict more pain. How do you think that message resonates. And how do you think he went before estimates? Well, uh, central bankers are very good at communicating or not communicating. Their job is to parse every word because they know anything they say can move markets. I think you're the only person I've ever heard say Reserve Bank governors are good at communicating because by and large, they're men of few words. But yeah, They are. and But for them, not communicating... That's part of the game, is yeah. to make sure they don't say too much. Less they would more. be terrible guests on podcasts, let me say mm, that. Mm. So it, it didn't surprise me that he actually performed quite well. It helps because he faces the House Economics Committee every six months, and the House Economics Committee, for the first time ever, has three trained economists on it, uh, Daniel Molino, Andrew Charlton, Allegra Spender. They are going to be a bit more perceptive in these issues. The senators, like they're looking, is uh, a real grab bag of questions. Um, so you, you couldn't build any real pressure on Lowe. And there is an ability to build pressure. So he was able to fend off things relatively easy and get across his message, which comes back to, right, inflation is bad. You guys, he's talking to all of us saying, you guys haven't seen inflation for 30 odd years. You don't know how bad it is. Now, remember, three years ago, he was complaining he couldn't get inflation up high enough. And this is part of the problem that the, the bank governor has had. He talked about, uh, you mentioned the letters that he's received. He has used this same message before, but in reverse. He said, I've been receiving letters 
from people saying interest rates are too low. I, I've got money. I, I'm not getting enough from my savings. So that's right. So Three years ago, he wanted def- inflation up and he wanted wages and up. So and now one thing we know rates. for sure is that he gets heaps of letters. Shane, the I governor <laughs> has been warning politicians and unions about talking up high wages. Warning of a wage price spiral. No, he talks about a price wage spiral. They are different things. Do tell. Come round, kids, and I'll explain <laughs> to you something going on. Thanks, Uncle. So, so put it this way. Wage price spiral, Fran gets a 50% pay rise. Well done, Fran. And everybody else does. She goes out and spends it, and that means uh, businesses are able to increase their prices. That's a wage price spiral. The Reserve Bank, and if you read their, and again, this is why you, read, you have to read anything they say very carefully, they talk about a price wage spiral, and that is the prices that we've seen increase, and it's not being caused by wages. Everybody knows what's gone on in, say, petrol and gas, mm. uh, the supply chain issues that means something from overseas is costing a lot more, particularly out of China. That goes up and wage earners go, hey, hold on, I can't afford that. Please, Mr. Businessman, Businesswoman, can you give me a pay rise? They have, they end up with similar results, but it's the way that inflation is driven is very different. And so this is why he says, say, he wasn't overly concerned about, say, the pay rises that uh, the 5.2% minimum wage increase that was agreed upon last year because that was a catch-up. But they're worried about further pay rises that may be a 5 or 6%, which some unions are saying, we want something in line with inflation. Now, if you picked it as right at the moment, 7.8, that would be turning over your, your price wage spiral into a wage price spiral. Okay. I'm feeling like I'm in the middle of a Monty Python script at it, the moment. There are no dead parrots involved. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It's really important is, to get across that they are differences yeah, in these things. I understand. And thank mm. you for your expertise. But three years ago, he was saying, yeah. bring wages up. Now he's saying, be careful, don't bring them up too much. But what he actually said, which struck me was, I actually don't think there will be yeah. a, a wage price spiral or a price wage spiral, but if there was one, it would be really, really dangerous. Yeah, he did. And he's they're picking up information, say, from all the enterprise bargaining agreements that are being signed over at the moment. But he's seeing all of that, he's and his signal is, I don't think that's a danger actually no, right at the moment. No, they are seeing, right, first year of, say, a three-year EBA is in, maybe in line with inflation, but the next two years are not. And so to get inflation, you have to have things continually going up and going up by a greater amount. That's the more general point that they've been trying to get across. Can I just take you to some of the politics around this? Because it seemed to me very interesting that the coalition, in its questioning of the, the governor, was really trying to set up the the government as not doing the heavy lifting on inflation and putting too much pressure on the bank. Now, Earlier in the podcast, Fran and I talked about the fact that the opposition is, you know, basically not supporting all of Labor's policies, right? Like housing and the reconstruction mm. fund. It is part of their bigger narrative around Labor's putting pressure on inflation and we don't want extra debt. But how do you think that's actually playing out? Because the Reserve Bank governor is the one that's really carrying the can on all of this. Are people turning and thinking, hang on a minute, the government needs to be doing more? People want help to pay for their bills. Give me some sort of handout. Like even last year, the uh, reduction in the fuel tax excise was to leave more money in the pockets of people. The then government's decision to increase and continue the low and middle income tax offset. 
that handed money back to people, that was inflationary, <laughs> like there, of which there is no doubt. You were putting more money into pockets, which can be spent. And that is the real problem. I found it really interesting that, and it, it goes to the fact that the, the coalition hasn't been in opposition for a decade. They're still learning their way or finding their way to ask really telling questions. So they got on to, say, the Housing uh, Future Fund. And isn't that inflationary? Well, the government is going to borrow $10 billion by itself. That's not inflationary. You've got to spend it. And the spend is $500 million a year. It wasn't just Phil Lowe, but Treasury Secretary Stephen Kennedy got asked the same thing and about the mm. size of the deficit. Angus Taylor has been in this space as well, pushing mm. this uh, narrative that you're running, running too big a deficit. And you actually, I, I had flashbacks to the, to the early 2000s when then Ken Henry, the Treasury Secretary, was trying to explain to Labor senators that it's not just the, it's not the size per se of the deficit or surplus which determines whether it's inflationary or deflationary. It's whether it increases or decreases over time. And both Lowe and Kennedy had to school the opposition on this very important economic point. But that's them. I'm still finding it's really interesting. They're still learning to really push the politics. And that's where you, could, you saw that coming through, as, as you accurately say, Patricia, the coalition was trying to get the, the killer quote from Lowe saying, well, the government's not helping us. Yes, yes. But they didn't get that, did they? They didn't get that. In fact, didn't they get something close to the opposite, which is that he's not particularly worried about the, the spending at the moment? Yeah, he, he went very close. And he, as I say, he's all, central bankers are always guarded about being seen to support or yes. uh, dump upon a government policy, whichever political persuasion they are. So he was saying it is broadly neutral in terms of economic policy. Just a quick one before we leave the Governor. Um, everyone was struck, uh, economists and politicians alike, when the Reserve Bank Governor's statement came out and referred to interest rate rises. Was there any... Over months. There was... <laughs> well, yeah, was there any good explanation from the Governor about this? Because I've been talking to a lot of politicians and Labor politicians, government politicians, who's, who basically saying they don't believe there will be a need for three rate rises, and yet economists seem to be factoring those in. So, Yeah, well, the financial markets have actually been more accurate than the Reserve Bank in terms of forecasting where interest rates mm. will be. Financial markets, when Phil Lowe famously was saying at the end of 2021, I don't think we'll have rate rises until 2024, financial markets had priced in at least three. Mm. So, And he has said, he has conceded on points, well, the markets are probably doing a little bit better. Um, and this gets to this point, the fact that from December last year, when the bank had its last meeting of the year, you read the minutes, the bank had thought, they looked at holding interest rates at zero, a 0.25 and a 0.5 increase. No communication for two months. Then we get this statement from Dr Lowe, announcing the 0.25 and then saying more, saying increases over months. And everyone's gone, hold on, that's a lot different from where we were thinking two months yeah. ago. And that's why all these rabbits are run and the financial markets have now got a 4.1 cash rate by August. Um, and some economists are at 4 and 4.35. Mm. But then you've got people saying, these guys are going so hard, they'll be cutting interest rates at the tail end of yeah. this year because the economy will be well, sagging under this. Well, let's look at some of this because we know consumer confidence has dropped drastically, oh. like reaching recession-like levels, right? Households have been in pain for a while now, but clearly the, the, that, I think, just indicates 
where this is all going. I mean, this is, we keep getting told that they, they still think they can get through this narrow path to this soft landing, but how much more narrow did it just get? Tightrope. <laughs> We've gone I don't want to. I don't want to walk it. <laughs> oh, come on. Toughen up, Patricia. The problem is the governor's saying they acknowledge these are really hurting some sectors of the community a lot more than others. And he talks about this massive savings pool that's still out there. And now basically the bank's looking around to see when are we, when are the Australians who hold these savings? It's a huge savings buffer that we as a nation have currently privately held. When are we going to start spending it? How are we going to start spending it? It's like they're sort of looking around for the first person to notice where the spending's coming. Yeah, see which, pick out which canary dies first, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, It's interesting, UBS, uh, the investment bank, actually did some research into who actually has this 140, 160 billion. And who is it? People over 65 who own their own home. They've socked away all this cash and their worry uh, and it, it seems a very legitimate one, is that the people who don't have savings are those 35 to 50 who've got mortgages. Yeah, of course. They're, they're a real issue. Um, and that's that's one of the things. And even on uh, Wednesday, the Commonwealth Bank announced $5 billion, a bit over $5 billion half yearly profit, but the share price of the Commonwealth Bank fell by about 5 or 6%. And that's because they're starting to get a little bit worried about the very point that you're making, Fran. The bank profits is a huge one, though, right? I mean, if you look at the the profits the banks are making, yeah, they don't like to admit it, and they like to talk about, of course, how tough um, it is. Yeah, yeah, they're letters. They're getting letters too. I mean, yeah, getting it's a lot of letters. Look, it's, Australia it's the, Post is reporting how it is, hard it is to send letters. Who are sending letter these letters? Writing. I want to know. I I'm about to write one. I feel um, <laughs> personally, um, it's it's not an easy time for a lot of people, right? But. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has ordered an ACCC inquiry to shine a light on on the issue of, you know, major banks and interest rates. Uh, Shane, have the banks been too slow to pass on savings on that part of the equation? Because, yeah, they're happy to sort of jack up your interest rates. It's, it's not bad. That's, they don't mind that, but they're not so keen on the other side. No, they're not. Uh, like, and there's actually been a bit of a competition. Some of the banks have actually offered bigger increases because they think they can woo a few savers over. But Lowe actually touched on this uh, in the Senate performance saying, yep, at the moment the banks are doing well because they can make money because of that difference between uh, the mortgage rate side of things and the saving side of things. But he then went on, and it's a fair point, RBA's plan is to slow the economy. That's what you do with interest rate rises. You slow the economy. And we know they think the unemployment rate will tip up from 35 to 4.5%. That's another, an extra 150,000 people out of work. That's what it means at the end of the day. And his point was, as we slow the economy, that's going to put pressure on the banks themselves. So they'll make money now, but it will wind back their profits over the next 12, 18 months, for instance. So, yep. We can focus, his point is, focus. you can focus right now on the profit being made, but they will, the, the commercial banks will feel a bit of pain as we slow the economy. Well, I think that would be good for them because I think it's dangerous for the banks and their social licence to be seen to, you know, profiteering off people's misery and all these high interest rate pain, don't you think? Well, it, the cash rate's 3.35%. What was the cash rate when John Howard famously say interest rates will always be lower? About three and a half, even in question time. But this it's week, all relative. It's it is all relative. All relative, and it's because Australians have taken on 
a huge amount of Our debt to pay for their houses. Our mo- mortgages yep. are whopping and you Eye know watering. what? It's not our fault. I'm talking for all of us here. It's not our fault. Housing is very expensive, as in not not average yeah. people trying to get into the market. It's not yeah. like, hey, I just want an enormous mortgage, you know, fancy pants, the harbourside mansions. People have got enormous mortgages for pretty modest digs. We are the second most indebted households in the developed world. And uh, look, sometimes I think we're trying to be number one for some particular reason, but it's a failure... It's a failure of government policy across all governments. It's a failure of monetary policy for a long while. And this has happened across the world as interest rates have fallen. But people in themselves, we have decided as a community, we want to spend more money on housing. We, as, as individuals and collectively, we have made that decision for the last 25 to 30 years. Mm, I think and there'll be a lot a of price people... being paid now. A lot of people out there thinking, mm, I didn't make that decision, <laughs> I just wanted a house. Shane, it's terrific as always to have you. Thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure to share some time with you too. See Thank you later. You. Cheers. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Order. And this question for our question time comes from Ben from Belmain. I love Belmain. Um, In the Senate, most people are voting above the line, specifically for a particular political party. Would it not be fairer if someone like Lydia Thorpe wants to move to the crossbench that she should resign her seat to another member of the Greens and wait to fight the next election as an independent? Well, Ben, yes, sounds like it would be fairer. (laughs) But is it going to happen, Fran? No, it's not going to happen. It's not how the system works because, yes, you're right, I'm sure, that most people do vote above the line. Most senators get in, you know, benefit of the party vote, but not all. Some people voted for Lydia Thorpe, and I think if she was tossed out of the parliament, um, there would be some people who say, well, I've been disenfranchised, my vote doesn't count anymore. It's tricky, but that's how it works, isn't it, PK? Yeah, I mean, you'd have to change the rules. Um, I know people have been writing columns. In fact, Paul Kelly, the Australian, was sort of saying, you know, you need a, uh, you need a change to the constitution. Like this is a huge issue. But I can't see enthusiasm. Despite they definitely find it annoying, all the parties. Obviously, even the Greens are annoyed. They're just not telling you. Um, but they can't. There's no enthusiasm for the law reform. So you just got to suck it up. Um, and I, I, yeah. This, but yeah. I mean, she now represents. She says the Black Sovereign Movement. That is not the ticket she got elected on for sure. No. But that's that's the way the cookie crumbles. And occasionally, <laughs> just just occasionally, you do see this happened in Tasmania in sort of recent memory. You do see someone who is um, way down the party's ticket, so not benefiting from that party vote, get up and above the the sort of party ticket and get their quota in their own right because they have a personal popularity. So occasionally you do see that. So I I just think, well, it would have to be a rule change and you'd have to, you know, bear in mind that there is a popular vote that goes with some people. Yeah, and no one can be bothered with doing it. So it's not going to happen. But yes, I mean, obviously the no most ethical thing would be. <laughs> That's it, Ben. Actually, no one can be bothered. You've got to have political capital you put into something. Who's going to put the political effort into this? Uh, no, no. All right, that's it for us this week. If you want to send a question, we love your questions. Uh, it's The hashtag is The Party Room or the email is thepartyroom at abc.net.au and you can even send us a voice recording if you'd like. Let's bring those back in. We've had them in the past. We haven't had them for a little while, but I love a voice recording. You just press record and you can send it to us and then we can hear from you. as well. It is a podcast after it all. It is a podcast after all. It's audio, audio, good 
think I've forgotten about those. That's a good idea. Remember, you can follow us on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. And in exciting news, you don't have to wait until Thursday to hear another episode of The Party Room. In fact, if you're in Sydney this Sunday, you can join us for a live recording at the Fair Day Festival. It's going to be a fun day, kicking off the Mardi Gras festivities and actually kicking off something even bigger, right, Fran? Exactly. Kicking off World Sydney World Pride, which is like kind of global Mardi Gras. So Sydney's going crazy with rainbows at the moment. We are the party room. It's a big party. So we're going to be there at Fair Day and we've invited some special guests too. Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, and the Liberal Senator, Andrew Bragg, will join us for a live panel there at Fair Day. It's all kicking off at 1.45. If you're in Sydney, don't miss it. For those of you who aren't in Sydney, don't worry, because we'll release that recording as a bonus episode soon after. Yeah, of course, because not, I know lots of people can't get to Sydney, including, um, you know, the, the queer people who listen to this podcast. So that's OK. It, it will be available. We, we'll look after you. We well, will. that's it. That's it for the party room today, Fran. Not for the week, though, as we say. So I'll see you in a couple of days. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.